Welcome to Deep Look, Ulti World's weekly radio show about the current state of Ultimate. I'm the host and the editor of Ulti World, Charlie Eisenhood. Joining me, Keith Rayner, as always. Keith, big question to start today's show. What is the best flavor of Ben & Jerry's ice cream? I know there are going to be a lot of opinions on this out there in the world. There have probably been wars fought about this topic. I, I am a, a noted aficionado of sweet things at the Ultra World office. I get made fun of, but I also spent Keith a summer. Always has candy. True fact. It, it, it's like it's like going up to the vending machine and just knowing that there's going to be candy in it. Keith has candy, but he is a discerning candy aficionado and has very high quality candy, particularly in the gummies department, which I appreciate. I I also spent like a summer once basically working at a Ben and Jerry's. Uh, what does that mean point, basically working at a Ben and Jerry's? So I worked I worked at uh, like a series of uh, food stands at the Atlanta Zoo, but most of my time was spent at the Ben and ah, Jerry's. Oh, I see. Okay. But so, you know, some days I would work in Nathan's hot dog stand or whatever. Do you get uh, sweet zoo perks if you work there? No, basically not. But I got to eat a lot of bad food. Uh, <laughs> so that uh, that was cool. My sister was a zookeeper. I think you know this. So I did. Yeah. Uh, I did get to see my sister every once in a while. And then she, I could get cool perks by hanging out with her. But so I've like fed a rhinoceros before. But, you know, just just normal stuff. Um, anyway, Ben and Jerry's. Uh, I discovered while working there the greatest flavor, which I believe Charlie just recently tried for the first time. Chocolate therapy. Chocolate therapy. It's like chocolate ice cream with little bits of fudge and then swirls of chocolate pudding in it. I'm not a chocolate obsessed person. I know some people like that is their thing when it comes to sweets. I'm not one of those people, but this is incredible ice cream. I literally had it for the first time yesterday, which is why this topic came up at all. Uh, I, I went with my standby and what's probably number one in the power rankings for Ben and Jerry's for me, which is Chunky Monkey banana ice cream, chocolate chunks, and walnuts. Incredible. But I had it with the chocolate therapy. And that combination, I think the combo is the key. So good. So good. Ben and Jerry's a very nice treat from time to time. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of half-baked. That's probably my number two. I like Uh, Cherry Garcia a lot. It's a classic. It's a classic. 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 New York Super Fudge Chunk also, not just because I live in New York. That's just a great ice cream because I, I like the crunchy, which is kind of a downside to the uh, chocolate therapy, no crunch. But the combination with the Chunky Monkey gets you the crunch real nice. Oh, weird. That's one of the things I like about the chocolate therapy is that the pudding adds this like really nice, smooth textural element. Uh, just just truly amazing ice cream. Like there's this – there's like uh, – you know, in New Haven, there's like an artsy uh, ice cream place. It's good, uh, a Ruthessa Dairy Farm, but like just down the street, there's Ben and Jerry's, and it's like, well, this this place that's been doing it a long time is also pretty good. So, I have a friend from college who is from Vermont, and her dad is like some executive at Ben and Jerry's. So they. They have Ben and Jerry's like you wouldn't believe. It's like going to the Ben and Jerry's store. You go into their freezer and they have like a million pints because they just get it for free. So uh, I'm, I'm, gl- I like, I'm glad I didn't grow up there. I would be, it would be too much. I would eat way too much. Yeah, I, I could eat a lot of Ben and Jerry's. Let's, let's leave it at that. All right. Let's get into this show. We've got a great show. 
um, despite this weird opener. Uh, we're gonna talk. Uh, we're gonna talk some big picture club season stuff. Looking ahead to next year, thinking about kind of the 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 big big stuff. What what are, what are we taking away from this season and this club nationals? A great club nationals, by the way. Like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, man, that was a great club nationals in every way. Like the competition level is super high. The semis and the finals were all really good. The uh, destination was great. A lot of upsets, a lot of crazy stuff. It was just, it was a lot of fun from start to finish. Great nationals. Um, we also have uh, Cody Johnston will be coming on with us. Cody Johnston, they uh, played with Space Heater this season and has played with Truck Stop in the past. And he was at the U24 tryouts for the East Coast this past weekend. And he will give a as a reporter, not, as a reporter, not a yes, not as a tryout, <laughs> as a reporter. Uh, he will give us a dispatch about what he saw there. And um, I think uh, this podcast will probably be out before his write-up and highlight video that he's making. So he's he's pulling triple duty. He's the triple threat right now, doing the pod, the video, and the write-up. So looking forward to that. We will have more coverage of West Coast U24s coming up this coming weekend. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that just about does it. We'll have a little small ball at the end as usual. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, before we get to club though, Keith, real quick, uh, college fall season kind of been a nightmare so far. We've had a ton of tournaments, the big tournaments getting canceled for one reason or another. Missouri loves company, always a big Midwest tournament, ton of teams go down there. Uh, to Missouri, and it got rained out on Sunday. So while there were some games played, just didn't really get that good look at how teams were going to face off in the championship bracket. And they did have power pools, so you got to see some teams playing. Wisconsin went 4-0. Northwestern, sleeper team, folks, in the men's division, sleeper team went 4-0. Looking forward to seeing them play. Uh, In the women's division, I... Do, do they have power pools in the women's division? I think they, they did, do. They did. Who went 4-0, Keith? Uh, I believe we had two teams go. They had two power pools. Uh, so I think it was Texas in one pool and uh, Carlton in the other, I that believe. That sounds right. Yep. Two two teams that I think are going to be really good this year. Dominica Sutherland coming back for another season for Texas. And Carlton, man, they had so much young talent last year. With another year of experience, that team's going to be. Are are, are they going to be semis quality this year, Keith, or, or or is that a little premature? I think it's possible. I think there's there's an open slot, and they are returning a lot of talent and adding even more talent. It's a question of can that talent convert even when they're young. But they did not lose much from last year, so I expect them to be in semifinals contention. Should be a lot of fun. So, uh, but unfortunately, again, rained out on Sunday. Uh, and then Sean Ryan, the big West Coast fall tournament, or California, I guess I should say, um, because of the wildfires out there, Sunday was completely canceled. The women's teams didn't get to play on Saturday either. So there was pool play for the men's teams on uh, Saturday, but then no championship bracket. Um, of course, so scary, those wildfires. Hope all of our California audience is, is okay and uh safe because you know having grown up in new mexico i know how scary that stuff can be and with the proximity of 
the forests to many people's homes. It's just extra scary. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really alarming to see how this is becoming like a feels like an annual problem. Two, two thoughts. One, it, man, I, I'm obviously not from the West coast, but wildfires just feel anachronistic. Like, like something that shouldn't be a major problem in a civilized nation anymore, but like they're very real. It's like, there's so much open country out there and so much dry wood and dry. I don't know, man. That's crazy to me. Um, uh, so I definitely hope everyone's safe. Also look back at, at Sean Ryan, just for, for clarity's sake, in case anybody's wondering men's games, I believe were scheduled in the morning and women's games were scheduled in the afternoon. That's right. So because of that stagger, the men did get in some of their games before cancellation became official. So, uh, that, that, that's why it ended up with one division getting some time out there. Notably in the men's division, Cal playing well, looking like they might have an up season. They're actually flying out to CCC in a couple of weeks, um, and uh, they beat Stanford. So something to see, perhaps a, a new contender in the Southwest. Uh, Cal Poly Slow also played very well and won their pool. So, you know, but but again, like we're not getting the meaningful games this college fall it feels like didn't um, didn't we have a lot of rainouts last spring as well like not a lot of major events but a ton of uh, events i feel like on the east coast got rained out yeah i mean i i think part of this is that field sites have learned that if you let ultimate tournaments happen through rain that your fields are destroyed and I don't know if it's because there's just higher, you know, expectations for fields or what, but it does feel like rain tends to cancel tournaments a lot more than it used to. I mean, obviously lightning, sure, cancel. Uh, Crazy winter storms with snow and, you know, blizzard conditions, obviously canceled. But a lot of times you might be able to play through rain, but I think we're seeing that less and less. And, um, you know, you just never know. It's especially the college season happening in in many parts of the country while it's still pretty wintry conditions uh you're gonna have tournaments unable to to play through it and i think what that's going to mean is that we're going to see increasingly tournaments happening at turf complexes where it just doesn't matter you know you want to play in the snow great go for it we don't care it's turf um and while turf is not as fun to play on i, don't, I think most people would agree uh it's a lot less bad in the winter time and uh, being able to play is is pretty nice. I wonder. I wonder if tournaments can afford to strike up some sort of deal where it's like, look, we will play. We'll pay extra if we have to play in the rain and destroy your fields. Well, I think there's almost no amount of money that would make it worth it <laughs> for a field site because, man, cleats just tear a field apart in like one game. So, anyway. We await. It feels like we're going into the college spring with a, a lot of questions and not a lot of early action to kind of give us a sense of where things are. Uh, so I think it's going to make this season a lot of fun as we, you know, we don't necessarily have as many expectations for teams as usual. Yeah, usually there's kind of a three stage process, right? You start out with your just looking over the rosters, expectations, preseason darlings. Then you get your fall action. You 
called some of the people who didn't play well. You add some teams to the list that did play well. Then you go into the spring and you find out who's for real. Just feels like we're going to miss one of those stages. So we're going to kind of go into the spring with the teams that we thought, you know, had a chance of being really good being the kind of early season outside teams as high expectation squads. So, uh, you know, a team like Northwestern in the men's division and, and potentially in the women's division uh, may end up in that early top 25, but with a lot to prove. It's going to be an interesting season too. Some tournaments moving around. You've got, uh, you're going to have, so warm up is moving field locations. They're also moving weekends. Normally it's over president's day weekend. So you have the two big tournaments, you know, you have president's day invite out, out West in San Diego, and you have warm up out East in Florida. Uh, historically warm up's been a men's only tournament, but now they're at least trying to add a women's division this season. But because they moved back a week and Queen City tune-up moved ahead a week, they are falling on the same weekend. Now, typically teams chose one or the other and didn't go to both of those tournaments, but it is going to be a kind of like a, another dynamic to see what happens there as you have two kind of pretty important East Coast tournaments happening on the same weekend. Will also be challenging for us, but exciting. Yes. <laughs> Um, but a lot more to come on the college season very soon. Uh, one other thing we need to kind of wrap up before we get to big picture club stuff. Uh, on our show last week, we were talking about a lot of club awards. And we were alerted on Twitter that we didn't really touch on two awards, um, specifically in the mixed division. And uh, the first one was the Offensive Player of the Year Award, which was won by Mac Taylor from Blackbird. Um, now to be, to be clear, we were not trying to slight these people or the importance of their awards. Um, mostly it just kind of slipped past us as we were going through so many different things. Um, I think this one went by us for a kind of an obvious reason, which is that Mac Taylor could basically win offensive player of the year award any season. Uh, he is, and has been one of the very best male players in the mixed division for, what feels like forever at this point, uh, as he has kind of been the number one player on Blackbird for a long time. Um, he had another great year. I'm not sure there's much else to say about it. He is the reason that team is good <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, he he is one of the most dominant players in the mixed division, period. So, uh, such a combination of, of size, speed, and throwing ability that's just like, that it's so hard to find someone to go one-on-one with him. The, the kind of player that demands kind of a team strategy to defend. And uh, then the, the other award was the Breakout Player of the Year Award. Always a good one. And uh, this was won by Ellen Goldberg of Seattle Mixtape. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Mixtape in a bit. Uh, but, you know, just she had, she had a fantastic season. You, I love this award because it highlights people who are kind of on the come up and she's not a name that we were really talking about much last year. And, uh, and then boom, she has this great season and, you know, had to beat out some other really good candidates for, for breakout. Um, the, the runners up were Ted Scyther from space heater and Aubrey Dietrich from shame. And, uh, she, uh, you know, coming back from the women's division, was a, a key downfield player for them and uh, you know was able to, to create a ton of space for their offense. I, I think she she made a lot of her her 
case during the regular season, which I would say that she was one of the front runners for the award coming into nationals uh, mixtape missing Abby Abramovich for much of the year, which gave Goldberg a ton of opportunity on the O line as uh, a big, tall, fast cutter who could really get the offense moving uh, and score a lot of goals. Uh, I think maybe her role got a little bit reduced at nationals by the time Abramovich was back in, in the fold, but uh, obviously the effects of the development opportunity for Goldberg played in because she, she looked strong and it was a good year for her. Uh, it definitely deserving of the award after, you know, coming back from the women's division, like you mentioned, was not someone I think was really on the radar as a big pickup for mixtape, but ended up being a pretty key figure in their run. Indeed. Uh, so, uh, let's now turn our attention to the, and, and by the way, uh, our apologies for not really covering those last week. Um, truly just an, an oversight in the midst of a, of a long conversation about these various awards. Uh, so we, we got kind of like a club roundup show here. I mean, this is like big picture stuff. And I'll just say right now, you know, we're not going to be able to cover every possible topic because you could really look at almost every team and talk about them and, you know, where they're headed and what's next and what their outlook is. Uh, but, uh, what I will say is email us deep look at ultiworld.com. And, uh, if you have topics that you want us to get into, uh, kind of on this big picture side of things, and we'll probably do uh, one more segment about this on an upcoming show. So, uh, if we don't cover something you want to hear about today, shoot us an email, give us your thoughts, comments, welcome, and we will discuss coming up. So first thing, Keith, one of the things I was kind of thinking about after Nationals is like, which teams are heading upwards and which teams are kind of trending downwards in terms of, you know, not just their performance this year, but kind of the the expectations for the team going forward. And why don't we start in the women's division? Uh, who are, what, what are a couple teams that you think are are kind of moving in the upward direction right now and, and looking towards uh, bigger and better in the future. Well, let, let me jump on the easiest answer here. The, and I'll take the team that has one breakout player of the year with like a teenage center handler for two years in a row, Toronto Sixers. Uh, this is, you know, they, they have a great young core of throwers to build around, uh, especially if Anushka Baudry is back in the fold next season. Uh, I think that this is a team that you should expect to be one of the top contenders to try and break into the big four for the next few years. Uh, Just a really young, talented group, even beyond those core throwers. uh, I I don't think they have a ton of players who look like they're about to age out. Uh, I think they have a nice, nice core to build around and are, have really established a culture over the past couple of seasons. And I think that that's attractive to people who talent that wants to come in. Uh, so I, I, I expect that, that they will be maintained competitive. Now I don't know if they will be able to quite break through. Uh, I think it's going to depend on some of that star power for them. Uh, I also think it, it's troubling that they don't necessarily have a ton of college feeder programs. A lot of the talent that they've been getting are players who are coming directly from like that under 19 age. Uh, so we'll see how that affects them. It's a little bit different in Canadian ultimate where you have other playing opportunities outside of college. But I think that the Sixers team is the easy answer uh, because so much of their, so much of their top talent is so young. 
Yeah, and I can't. I got to say that I wonder a little bit. Could Jesse Grignon Thomas end up on the Sixers? I don't know where she lives full time. Um, of course, she played for Brute Squad this year, uh, but is a one of the top Canadian players. Could be a huge pickup. I mean, I think one of the things going for Sixers is that there's not really a lot of competition for you know other teams pulling their players away. And, and like there, there are other teams. Don't get me wrong. You have Iris from Quebec and. Uh, you know, most players who live in Quebec are probably not going to want to play for a team in Toronto. But if you want the like maximum competitive experience, it's Sixers, or I guess playing in the United States with a team, but that has its own challenges. Um, so you know, whereas somebody who lives, let's say, in Philadelphia, could play for a ton of different teams and feel like they're playing on a nationally competitive program, uh, all within you know three hour drive. Uh, it's not really the same if you live in or near the greater Toronto area. So I think Sixers has that going for them as well. You know, we've pretty much always seen teams cluster into, you know, Vancouver and Toronto. So uh, if that continues, I feel really good about Sixers' ability to retain talent and pick up players as they continue to get better. It was also a tremendous year for Mariel Hammond uh, as part of the core now of Portland Schwa, who I think outperformed a lot of expectations at Nationals this year. And I think that's going to put them on track to continue to trend upward, particularly when contrasted with their rival, the, the team that they often have to compete with to get in a national, Seattle Underground, who really struggled at the end of the year. So I think Schwa is, is potentially in a good position. Uh, you know, Julia Sherwood has been a talent and I, I think they can build around the core of, of her and Hammond and continuing to add talent. They brought in some players who I think have had a pretty good impact for them this year. Uh, Morgan Caldwell, Noel Takahashi. Uh, these are players who can continue to grow for them. Demery Horton. Uh, and we'll see how that builds around that group. But I, I think there's a chance that we could see Schwa really push into a higher tier, especially when they're in the pro flight next year and have a chance to really cut their teeth against top flight competition all year. It's pretty sick to watch Mariel Hammond start to really ball out in the club division after dominating in college. And, you know, she kind of felt like one of those players who might just be a great college player and then just a mediocre club player. But she really took the leap this year. And it, it, she could be someone who's very exciting to watch in coming seasons. She also could like move to San Francisco or something. Don't say but. it. Don't say it. Please don't <laughs> say it. The specter that hangs over no. us all. No. Um, um, poor Portland. Uh, do, you, do you think there's any teams that are notably on the decline? I don't, I don't know if there's anybody I like am truly fearful about. Uh, I think it was a rough year for Nemesis uh, and – I, I'm a little concerned after how they performed at nationals. Uh, I think that we're, and I think we've been waiting on this for a few years now, but I think we could be seeing a changing of the guard for ozone. And they brought in a pretty young rookie class this year, a group that didn't have a lot of elite club experience. And they have some veterans who are still taking on really heavy loads for them. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to see, their veteran group kind of age out or opt out uh, and hand the keys over to the new class. And I, I would expect if that does happen for them to take a step back 
for for some time, but I think that the program is really strong, so I expect that that will come around in the future. But uh, it would not surprise me to see Ozone take a step back in the next year or two as they give give a new generation kind of a chance to take the lead for them. Looking over at the men's division, um, a couple teams really come to mind. Uh, first of all, Sub Zero. Minneapolis has, you know, this. You, you think back a couple of years ago, Minnesota, University of Minnesota wins college championships. And while sort of the face of that team, Ben Yacht, is now playing in New York, uh, a lot of that team, very talented team, is still in Minneapolis and is playing for Sub Zero. And you're starting to see them really come into their own as top level club players. Ryan Osgar has been amazing after being really the key to that championship run um, for the University of Minnesota. And, you know, they, they get the big win over Revolver at home this season at the U.S. Open. And then they go to Nationals and play really well. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't end up, like, making semis, but they go 2-1 and one in their pool. They lose only to Revolver. Uh, and then they get into the bracket where they beat Furious George, um, and then lose to a really good Sockeye team before going into consolation and um, you know making the pro flight. So while they're not you know they're not there yet, I think that's a team that could get there. There's such a good feeder in the Minnesota area in general, obviously with Carleton and University of Minnesota, uh, and they just have great youth programs there. I feel like we're going to continue to see high quality talent filtering into that team, and if they can keep that that Still not, you know, I would still call that a young core together. Uh, they're going to have a chance to do big things in the next couple of seasons. I I hope I'm not just entirely conflating them with Grey Duck, but I still feel like they're in need of that dominant cutter. That, you know, Osgar's a great mid, a guy who can take, can both cut and handle. And I think they have a bunch of guys like that, but I don't think they have that, that dominant big really you know maybe maybe colin barry can kind of outperform his size uh you know maybe somebody else develops i know they had nick moat come over this year and he offers some of that but uh, i still feel like that's a barrier for them it's fair i mean you'd love to see yacht go back i mean not if you're a pony fan but if yacht went back and played with them or nick stewart not that he's gonna but they, they, they've lost a lot of those players. It's, it's unfortunate because, you know, if they, if they still had, you know, a couple of those guys. I mean, think about all the guys who have left Sub-Zero. Grant Lindsley, who's won Player of the Year Award. Uh, Nick Stewart. Simon Montague. Uh, ben Yacht. I mean, brutal. Like, the, these are world-class players going off to play with better teams. Now, the thing is, in the past, Sub-Zero's never just... They've never been at the level where they could really compete. But it feels like they're getting closer to that. And uh, it's uh, we'll, we'll see what happens over these next couple of seasons. I, I don't disagree with your, with your assessment. I mean, they don't have that dominant goal scorer. You know, Osgar led them in assists with 24, which is insane, by the way. Uh, but goal scoring was much more spread out. They had two players with 10, 10 goals each at Nationals, Greg Cousins and Charlie Weinberg. They had a couple players with eight goals in Nationals, uh, Klain, who's a handler, uh, and Nick Vogt. And uh, Nick Simonelli had had nine goals. So 
they share the load, but sometimes you just need to have somebody that you can just throw it up to. And I don't know that they have that. Uh, but but it's not out of the question that they could get that in a good recruiting offseason. So we'll see. Uh, team number two that really comes to mind for me is kind of like on the on the rise is Furious George. And I don't think this should come as a surprise. You know, don't forget that they beat that really, really good Sockeye team at regionals. And sure, it's regionals. What does it mean? They only went, they went three and four at nationals. Um, but you look at the teams they lost to. Machine, who was clearly one of the better teams at nationals and almost upset Pony. Uh, Ring by one. Sub-Zero twice by two p- points each time. Uh, they beat Madison. They beat Bravo by six. They beat Chain. And, you know, they were not just back at nationals, but they did it in a big way. Uh you got to like where this team is headed and uh, you know, they're finally starting to have that air of uh, this is a nationals team every year again, after not really feeling like that for the last five or five or so years. And and I think that the, the core of this team is just seems like they're really bought in and they're young and they're talented. I think that you're going to continue to see them get young talent and, Creating the buy-in and the culture seemed like it was kind of the trial for Furious George as they kind of entered a new era. Uh, but I could definitely buy into the idea that this team's only going to get better from here. How about some teams on the decline? Um, the first team I'm going to mention, and, and both of these teams are kind of an interesting spot. So it's not necessarily that they're directly on the decline. But you know, we've already talked about being a little worried about Dig. Uh, you know, they finish in last place and that's never great. I mean, that's the, for, for a team from Boston to finish in last place in nationals is just brutal. Uh, but, but I think there's reasons to be a little bit worried about just generally Boston ultimate right now. You had this amazing Ironside team that really kept a core together for a long time before Ironside then kind of fell apart. Um, and it's not that there's not some exciting young talent in Boston. There is, uh, particularly Tanner Johnson, who had an amazing season, kind of ends up getting left out of the awards conversation, mostly because his team played so poorly at nationals. Uh, but the you know he is the future of Boston men's ultimate if he sticks around. Uh, he's really really good and had a great season. And uh, a good Nationals, frankly, like kept them competitive uh, before they, you know, just completely fell apart in consolation play. But but aside from that, I'm a little worried about Boston overall. Like, who are the other players that are stepping into those big time roles? Um, you know, you've got you've got players who are on dig like Mac Hecht, Ben Sidok, uh, that are that are definitely good. But you wonder, will they reach that? that really that next tier that you need to be at to to win at high-level club games. Uh, and they also are, you know, kind of lost some players to other divisions. You know, we saw Tyler Chan, who was one of the better cutters on Ironside, playing mixed this year. And uh, Peter Pryle is playing mixed this year. So where's Boston men's ultimate? I feel like it's a little early to say that it's, like, absolutely on the decline, but I also don't necessarily see, you know, where... where do, are they going to be better next year? They're going to have to recruit a lot to get better next year because I don't know that I necessarily see excellence coming from their current roster. I don't know, man. I feel like Josh Marquette is trending up. I mean, he's probably (laughs) 
probably in the first third of his career now. <laughs> I think he's probably got another 70 years left. It's it, it it's who, who, that guy doesn't age. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, he, he, I talked to him about it after regionals. He was like, "Yeah, I just didn't do anything when I was younger. Like I did I didn't try and be in shape and now I am and I'm in way better shape than than I was then." But uh, this is surprising to me uh, on on its face, but after hearing you talk about it, I guess it makes sense. Um, you know, I'm, I'll be curious to see how the the young players on this team develop. You know, you look at your Ben Fields and your Ryan Dingers. Uh, these are young young guys with a lot of time. Very young. Uh, I, I think that I wouldn't pronounce Boston Boston Men's Ultimate Dead or anything. No, but, no. Um, I could. I definitely think there's a lot of disappointment after the performance at Nationals, and that that has really changed how people look at the future of this team. Uh, the other team that comes to my mind is Madison Club. Uh, look, the t- the city has talent. We know this. There's a reason they won an AUDL championship, but that team is not the same as Madison Club, and frankly. They've been phoning in the club season a little bit for the last couple of seasons. And, you know, I, I keep expecting their success in the AUDL to transfer to club, but it doesn't seem like it is. Partly because they don't have the same rosters, but also partly because it doesn't seem like they necessarily are, you know, putting in the same focus and effort into the club season. So it makes me worried about Madison overall. And uh, while I think there's plenty of talent that could pull together and, and make a great team, it just doesn't seem like that's much of a priority. And after a pretty disappointing Nationals where they go uh, 0-3 in pool play and they're out, uh, it's it, it's a little concerning when you know you look at the team, you, you look at the players in the city before the season starts and you think this could this could be a really good team. Uh, and then they only end up winning one game in nationals <laughs> against Dig. By the way, um, uh, it's uh, it's it's hard hard, hard to see that because they've got some players right in the middle of their prime that could be dominating. Peter Graffy and Colin Camp, Kevin Brown, man, Kevin Brown, Kevin, Kevin Brown's a beast. Uh, but I I I wonder. This is kind of a non sequitur. I mean, I wonder if the AUDL big wigs are like praying that Madison goes out there before nationals and like does really well. <laughs> and then when they don't, they're like, Oh, that's not great that our, our champion like could barely take a game at to be the club clear, championships. This, the, the rosters are different enough that I don't Def- think they're the same teams. Still. I mean, I, Peter Graffy is one of the best players in the AUDL and in the club game, he just doesn't seem to quite have the same impact. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that concern is warranted. And uh, from you of all people, Charlie, I feel like you were driving the Madison Club fan bus this year, uh, and it came to a screeching halt. Yeah, I mean they had a tough draw in pool play, but still, you know, you only win one game in nationals. Like, what's going on there? Like, I, I worry about them making making nationals at this point because sub is getting better, and Madison's not. And will they be able to do enough to earn bids? I don't know. Um, so, uh, in the mixed division, I, I think Keith and I talking before the show, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like there's the same kind of sense of like up and down. Uh, 
Uh, we saw a, a, a lot of the kind of the same teams at the top this year, and I expect them to mostly be at the top next year. I think one of the big question marks is what happens to Seattle mixtape. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of buzz that the team may not come back next year. Mark Burton is probably done. And uh, if they don't come back, what happens to the Seattle mix scene? I mean, no doubt there's going to be a great Seattle mix team. But with the turmoil of BFG this season and mixtape likely going away, maybe. I don't know if likely is the right word, but there's definitely discussion at Nationals from mixtape players that they will not return next season. Um, you kind of wonder, like, what's going to shake out? in Seattle. Are we going to have BFG come back and no mixtape? And then that just becomes a, one of the top contenders. Um, obviously you have, you, you know, this season you had two great teams, two great mixed teams in Seattle. If you only have one and they consolidate talent, it feels like that could be a, a clear uh, a favorite maybe even to win nationals. Uh, yeah. I, I think that that team would be incredibly strong, but it, it's tough in, in the mixed division. Cause you know, you look at these semifinalists and we don't know, aside from AMP, who's going to do what next year, right? Like, where's Space Eater? Where's Snake Country next year? Uh, and then you go beyond that. Like, what does BFG look like next year? Uh, you know, it, it is very challenging to assess. Uh, but uh, but I, I when I look at it, I, I come away with the sense that AMP could be in a position for a – you know, obviously they've been a top team for a long time, but a long run, potentially multiple titles, you know, depending on how the landscape shakes out. But uh, this is a team with a core you could build around, uh, particularly if Spiva stays with the team. But there are players who have plenty of years left of being top end players in the division for this team. Uh you know, whether you're looking at Carolyn Normile or Linda Morris, who had a great year, uh, you know, Natalie Bova had a great year. Spencer Drew had a really strong year for them as well. Uh, there are Sean Mott, obviously, yeah, goes don't, without don't saying. Don't knock Sean Mott. He was a beast. Uh, Calvin Trissolini still has plenty of development left. I know he's, he struggled with injuries this year. Some, some, somebody who's still in college, Anna Thompson. I mean, you could see how there's a lot to build around here for AMP, and particularly because they had the continuity of a really strong coaching and leadership structure. Uh, I think there's a real chance you could see them have a pretty dominant run, especially if the other parts of the division are in flux. Uh, that's the takeaway for me. With the caveat that we don't know so much about what's going to happen next year. Yeah, I mean, the other thing going for AMP is that the men's and the women's teams in Philadelphia aren't so hot right now. I mean, that, you know, Philadelphia Green Means Go hasn't been nationally competitive in years. And Patrol has been a Nationals recently, but hasn't necessarily been a, a great team and missed Nationals this year and, you know, was kind of in a rebuilding season and, so you've got all these players on AMP, and it's like, playing for AMP, that's got to be a lot of fun right now. I mean, they're out there balling, and they've established themselves as clearly, you know, in the elite echelon in Mixed Ultimate. And I agree with you. I think if they all stick together, they have, I mean, a lot of their players are still going to be getting better for the next few years because they're so young. I mean, Carolyn Norwell just graduated. And Anna Thompson is still in college. 
And she was hurt this year a bunch. She was not her best self. You know, if she gets back to how she was playing last season and continues to improve, I mean, she's going to be a problem. She's going to be a problem for other teams. So I think that this gets to the bigger question is like, where is the mixed division right now? You have you have stability in Minneapolis with Dragon Thrust. You have stability with Amp in Philly. But then you like start to be like, well, these the other top teams this year just popped up. Will they stick around? I, I I would bet that even if you ask players on those teams, they may not know the answer to that at this point. Like, is Space Heater gonna do their thing again? I kind of think they're not. Maybe they are, but it feels like that was kind of like a we're going to do this one time and then we're going to go back to playing in the single gender divisions. I mean, if you just asked me. Um, so it's like, where where is mixed right now? Is are, are we like, is this how it's going to be? Are we going to have this kind of instability where teams come and go a little bit aside from the, the top few? Uh, or are we going to see, we're going to start to see teams settle in as uh, consistent, you know, markers of the division. And I think there's still a uh, culture wars overstating it, but like, I still think there's a bit of an identity crisis as, as there are different groups within mix, different groups of players that are there for different reasons. And sure, that's true in, in single gender as well, but I think it's particularly pronounced in mixed where, you know, some players are there to have a fun summer, uh, some are there to play with their friends. It's their significant other. Some are there because it's their best opportunity to play with an elite competitive environment. Uh, and it can be difficult to reconcile all of those things. So as long as you still have, you know, some players coming from elite single gen- gender play into the mixed division, having an outsized impact while you have other teams that are, you know, some are not practicing. Some are practicing a couple times a summer. Some are practicing, you know, multiple times a week. Uh, I think you're going to still see problems serving all those different masters, so to speak. Uh, And I think that's going to create a difficult environment to assess the competition level because things are so constantly changing. Uh, You know, it it does. I'm sure there are some people who feel like you can have it all. I'm sure there's some people who feel like it isn't a problem, like things are fine the way they are. uh, And this doesn't even get into the like, gender equity stuff that we've talked about how this year felt like a regression back to male centered, uh, mixed ultimate. But, uh, you know, I think there, there's still a lot to figure out as to what the identity of, of competitive mixed ultimate looks like. Uh, I know we have floated the idea of like we see in some other countries, a separate mixed season from the single gender season, but I don't know that I see that on the horizon. So I don't know how these pro- how these differences are going to get worked out over time. Be fun to follow, that's for sure. Uh, we have a bunch more questions that we were going to get to, but we're running up against the time limit already. So uh, we're going to save them for next week. But we've got some good stuff. Send us your other questions about the club season, big picture stuff, deep look at ultiworld.com. Uh, coming up next... Cody Johnson joins us to talk about the U24 East Coast tryouts. Uh, before that, a little blurb from my sideline talk conversation with Alex Snyder, which will be coming out very soon. If you are not already an Ulti World subscriber, I highly recommend it. 
We've had some really great Sideline Talk podcasts lately. Sideline Talk is our podcast about the people and personalities of Ultimate, interview-focused entirely, and uh, we just did a great one with Brian Jones. So I recommend checking out our subscription options and checking out the podcast. Here's a little blurb from Alex Snyder talking about when she had just lost in the semifinals of College Nationals, but had won the Callahan Award and was having to go to receive the Callahan Award. Here's Alex Snyder on that situation. We lost that game and I was devastated. And I remember just being, you know, huddling with, you know, my four close, three or four closest friends um, on that team and just crying our eyes out for hours at the fields after, you know, after we lost. And from there, you know, that we find, you know, our coach at the time, Michael Whitaker, finally kind of like collected us, mostly just like dragged us into the car and was like, okay, well, we can't stay at the fields because the sun has gone down and it's dark and like we need to leave and kind of like hoarded us into these cars. And, and at that, you know, at that moment is when he was like, listen, like to me, he said, you know, we need to go to the party back when they still had, you know, USA U hosted, well, excuse me, USA Ultimate hosted um, tournament parties. Right. Um, he, at college uh, nationals. At college nationals, exactly. There was, you A know, there was time. even beer served. <laughs> you don't say. Um, yeah, it was a magical time. Um, but, you know, him, I remember, my, you know, Wit telling me, like, listen, you know, Will Deaver just called and, like, we need to get you to the party because, you know, you've won the award and, like, they aren't going to run, you know, then the party had already started and they're like, they're not going to do the award ceremony without you there. Oh, wow. Like, and I was just like, I don't want to go. Like, I don't care about that award. Like, wow. all I want to do is, like, cry with my teammates. And, like, and I was just so devastated in that moment. And even now, it's like, I can still feel, like, how, where I was then. Um, and, you know, Mike's like, okay, well, we're going. So, you know, we have to go home and you have to change. And, like, we're going to the party because I promised Will that you would be there. And we went and, you know, I remember being there and hating every moment of being there. And I remember, you know, the, the award ceremony happened and, you know, they announced that I won. And I remember just kind of being up on the stage and thinking to myself, like, I would give anything to trade this trophy in for a, a chance to play in the finals game and to have gone back and had another chance. Hey, this is Alex Snyder, and you're listening to Deep Look. Enjoy! Joining us now is Cody Johnston, who was down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for the first half of the under-24 USA national team tryouts. Uh, half the tryouts will also be this weekend in California for the West Coast contingent. Cody, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, excited to hear about this. Now, why don't we just start with, uh, you know, how, how were tryouts overall? What was your overall impression of, of how things went this weekend? I think things went really well this weekend. Um, I mean, it was an incredible event, really well run by USA Ultimate. And it's such a cool, unique experience for both the players and the coaches to kind of transcend, you know, D1, D3, college rivalries, and really just come together as, you know, uniting to play for Team USA um, and get to play at a really, really high level. I think for a lot of people, the tryouts are maybe a little bit of a black box. So could you kind of outline what the structure of the tryout looked like and give a little context in that fashion? The tryout 
was held over two days, and it was broken into kind of three different groups, uh, men's, women's, and mixed. And throughout the day, players were kind of put into teams or pods that rotated through, um, so they had an opportunity to play single gender as well as mixed um, with a lot of different players over the course of the weekend. Um, I'd say primarily there was a lot of small-sided mini, a lot of three-on-three, a lot of four-on-four. And it wasn't really until the last couple hours on Sunday that they actually broke into seven-on-seven. What was the level of play like? It was incredibly high. Um, Very few unforced turnovers, very few people sticking out who didn't belong there. I mean, just everyone there was so good. I think the coaches will have a really hard time uh, picking. I think the margins are th- so thin that it really just comes down to really minute detail in what the coaches are looking for and what roles they're looking to fill. Did from from being around the coaches and and around the entire experience, did you get a sense of what the priorities were for the team selection process? Did they outline that at all for the players? Yeah, I mean, I think. The tough thing as a coach is you're looking for players who can play a role, but you're also looking for players who can take over. Um, And I think that over the course of the weekend, um, it was about players who were able to perform consistently at a high level and who were able to show growth and understanding of how to play with each other and how to play in a system. Um, I was kind of surprised by the amount of teaching that went on. Um, It wasn't just, you know, what you think of in a professional combine setting or in a regular club a club tryout when there's, you know, tests of conditioning, tests of athleticism. It was a lot more just playing and drilling, um, as well as teaching end zone sets and resets and things like that. And I think the coaches really look for how quickly players can learn and adapt uh, and grow over the course of, you know, just a couple days, because really the U.S. team only has, you know, a week or two together before they compete in the international setting. So I definitely want to hear about some of the players that stood out. But first, let me ask you this. Uh, there's a bunch of players who were on the U24 team last cycle who are back trying out again. From what you saw, do you expect all of the returners to make the team again? That's a tough question. Um, I think that the coaching staff in general, unless you do something really wrong, definitely gives a, 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 a an edge to the returners just because they've experienced the international format. They have relationships with the coaches and you know you kind of know what to expect. So there was no one that really stuck out that I say wouldn't make it. Yeah. I, I, I think in the brief history of these national team programs, we have seen USA ultimate favor their previous selections, not only for the same team, but players who played on other U S national teams. And, you know, obviously that could be in large part because those players are dang good. Like that's why they got picked in the first place. Uh, and that the experience itself enhances their ability to compete in this fashion. So no, no surprises there, but um, I think that the, the meat of this, that everybody's going to want to know is about who stood out, who played well. Uh, so that's kind of where I want to start going here. Uh, Cody, give me a sense of, of who were the top women that you feel like really stood out to you. Sure. I think the Dartmouth contingent and the whole um, Brute Squad contingent was just on another level. I mean, Angela Zhu, Juliana Warfley, Caitlin Lee, Claire Trope, um, as well as Megan Wilson from Tufts. I mean, they all just looked ready to play. And uh, our understanding is that Jack Verju was not in attendance. Is that right? That's correct. She was not in attendance, but she will be able to have, she'll have the opportunity to be selected. Um, <laughs> As in, she will be selected. 
yeah. Got it. So uh, how about how about on the men's side? On the men's side, I mean, it's no surprise, but you know, the UNC and the Carlton men were just incredibly strong. Uh, Matt Gucci-Hannis, Elijah Long, Liam Sarles Bowes, Walker Matthews, obviously for UNC, and then for Cut, you know, Stan Birdsong, Tim Shock, Joe White, Ethan Bloodsworth. You know, Dylan Lanier. I mean, there's so many that I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, half the men's team be comprised from just two colleges. Wow. Now, okay. Ethan Bloodworth, he played well, huh? He played really well. Yeah. But he looked uh. super active on, on D and was just tearing it up deep. <laughs> wow. Imagine that he almost didn't get a tryout. That's just still boggles my mind. Yeah. It's insane. Um, and, you know, Tanner Johnson was in a league of his own. He was completely dominant deep. Um, but also one of the things that surprised me the most was as a thrower. Um, he showed really a lot of comfort around the disc and really dynamic deep throws to space. Uh, a lot of time breaking the mark. That That's something I think that he's possessed but is refined over the past few years. And we we've seen him always be someone willing to take really difficult throwing choices and try and convert those. And it just feels like he's getting more and more efficient at it. So no surprise to hear that he could be one of the stars, even on a national team. And I think many people would have him as a, as a lock basically going into tryouts, understandably. So, uh, so we, we talked a little bit about some of the stars and, and the, from the big programs as well, but who are some of the players you weren't really familiar with who stood out to you? Yeah, so on the women's side, there was a couple players that I hadn't really heard about. Um, Jenny Choi from Georgia Tech, I thought was incredible. Uh, she had a huge hand block in the three-on-three showcase mini, some really cool full extension layouts, and a lot of saucy lefty backhands. Um, so she was great. Um, Ashley Powell, NC State's Callahan nominee from last year, was looked really good, as well as uh, Lindsay McKenna from Westchester. A couple of familiar names from College Nationals. Uh... But but uh, not 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 Jenny that you mentioned. So that's that's good to know. How about how about on the men's side? Any any surprises there? Yeah, I think uh, Jasper Tom from Carnegie Mellon had just some athl- ridiculously athletic bids. Um, both players from Wilmington who were in attendance, Rick Henninghausen and Connor Russell, looked good. Um, Chance Cochran from Tulane. Um, yeah, I mean, just it's 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 such a tough thing as a coach to try to choose from these players. I mean, you can do, I was talking to Tom Manowitz and, you know, he said you can do every single thing right in this tryout and still not make the team. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching the the team with Tom when they were last year's cycle doing their, their warmups. And like, you felt like that they could have take you could have taken the, the bottom end of the tryouts and still had an exceptional team. Uh, that's just the talent level. I think that, there is at these kind of trials and at this point, and it seems like it gets higher every year. It's I'm, I'm interested in, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the teaching elements. I, I want to talk more about the players, but, but I definitely want to come back and revisit some of the teaching elements because it's weird that ultimate doesn't quite have a universal language to discuss and, uh, you know, strategies are different. So seeing how people come together is definitely one of the interesting things. Did anybody stand out as a leader for you, is there anybody you saw who really you felt like was grabbing the reins as a leader? Ooh, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, so I think one thing that the coaches did really well is they let the tryouts breathe. 
they would teach something and then they would allow um, the players to kind of split into groups and talk and kind of figure out things amongst themselves without really overcoaching. And that definitely allowed people to step up and kind of be in those more leadership roles. Um, I think, you know, Tanner Johnson on the men's side, I would say Anna Thompson on the women's side, um, you know, someone who can get in the huddle and talk strategy and figure those things out. Um, did you notice any players that were particularly comfortable in a mixed setting? Obviously, these college-age players, for the most part, are playing single-gender ultimate, um, with with some exceptions, like Anna Thompson, who you mentioned, who's playing club during the regular or during the or playing mixed during the club season. Uh, did Did you notice players that were comfortable in that mixed setting, uh, per- particularly? For sure, I think John Randolph looked very comfortable. I don't know if it's the Seattle mixed or a Seattle youth scene that's doing it for him or what, but he looked very comfortable uh, in the mix setting. Um, and yeah, some really cool connections formed. Um, Angela Zhu boosted a ton of hucks to Joe White. You know, Joe Freund and Claire Trope played really, really well together. Um, yeah, there were quite a few players who stood out, um, but those are the, the ones that kind of come to mind off the top of my head. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Choids, Handblock, some uh, Jasper Tom with some skies. What? What were the biggest plays? Like I, I love this because it's a chance to kind of shout out people who really went out and did something exciting. What were some of the biggest plays you remember from from the tryout? So one of my favorite plays was on the in the seven on seven mix setting towards the end of the tryout on Sunday, and this high stall kind of floaty lift backhand went up to the front of the stack um, and to Elijah Long cutting up line, and Claire Trope saw it, read it. And without any fear for her body, just had a full extension layout D to smack it away and then got clobbered by Elijah Long, got right back up, went and scored the goal. Claire Trope is so good at ultimate Frisbee. Uh, it's unbelievable to watch someone at that age look so seasoned already. Uh, and in, in just incredible. I'm, 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 I'm not that surprised by that, honestly, which is should be surprising as she's, <laughs> what, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Um so, uh, you know, what, what are your kind of like, what do you come away thinking uh, about the, whether that's the tryouts or the players? Um, kind of what was your, your major impression as you, were, as you were driving home? I think that one of my major impressions was just how the explosion of the YCC and youth programs that USA Ultimate has put on has really led to this deeper and deeper talent pool. Um, I was talking to coach, the men's coach, Bob Creer, towards the end of the tryout, and he was saying how, you know, in the first cycle in 2013, when they went into Toronto, they had just bare-bone sets, and they weren't really able to go into a super deep dive because the players just weren't that experienced, whereas now, you know, five years later, they're able to implement way more advanced sets just because the talent pool is bigger and because the players are better than they used to be. The proliferation of, of coaching, I think, has also really enhanced and, and access to resources. Just players are smarter. They understand more now. Uh, so it's, I think that you're going to continue to see that trend. Uh, what do you think the prospects are for, for you know, after it, – it's so tough to say, but uh, do you think this team looks like they're just on its face from the talent pool going to be able to stack up to what previous U.S. national teams have done? I think so. I mean, you know, look, the U.S. has been dominant for so long, um, both at the – I mean, the U24 obviously started in – 2013, um, but just on the international stage, I think the U.S. national teams started attending in 20, 2012 or 2013 Toronto, and you know they're 89 and one. We've lost a single game um, to Japan, I believe, in the 2015 um, women's final. 
Um, so I think that this team will have no problem stacking up against the international competition. All right. Well, Cody, thank you so much for joining us. Looking forward to seeing the article and, uh, and the highlight reel. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to sharing it. Welcome back to Deep Look. Thanks again to Cody Johnson for stopping by. Excited to see what happens at the tryouts this weekend out on the West Coast. Uh, assuming, very, very hopeful that it can happen. Given the wildfires, you do worry about air quality as a potential concern for the tryouts, which are held set to be held in Tracy, California. So we'll keep you posted on that. So first of all, we asked last week as we closed out our show uh, about the question uh, for the World Games, would you rather have a World Games team from the United States that was, that, let's say that, that this 2017 team that was their 19-year-old selves or their 40-year-old selves? And uh, Keith and I have been doing some thinking. We also got a fantastic email from Noah who did the math and he put together a spreadsheet to see how many years of ultimate experience the World Games roster would have at age 19 and then how much older they would be at age 40 versus when they played uh, in 2017. So some of these players started playing like as little children. Grant Lindsley, Nick Stewart, and George Stubbs were all playing at age nine. I have no idea how Noah figured out all of these things, by the way, but deep digging, I love it. Um, you had some players who, you know, Georgia Bosher started playing when she was 13, Chris Kocher when he was 12. So uh, you got a lot of players starting at a young age, but then you also had a lot of players who didn't start playing until they were. 18 or even 19 years old. In fact, basically half the team only had one year of ultimate experience at age 19. That was, uh, let me give you the names, uh, Claire Desmond, Carolyn Finney, Sarah Griffith, Leanne Hoffman, Sandy Jorgensen hadn't even been, she started playing when she was 19, uh, Bo Kittredge, if you can believe it, um, and Anna Nazarov, who also started playing when she was 19. So then, Noah also looked at how much older players would be at age 40. And, uh, you know, some, some players, you look at Dylan Freechild, be 14 years older at age 40. Claire Desmond, 13 years older at age 40. Some, much closer to 40. Bo Kittredge, only five years from 40 right now. Uh, Nazarov, seven years from 40. Sandy Jorgensen, nine years. Sarah Griffith, nine years. So, uh you got a, a wide array. And so basically, Noah broke it down into two categories. He said, who would, been, who would have been better at 19 versus 40? Basically, that's the collection of players who started playing at a much younger age. And who would be better at 40? That's the players who started playing when they were 18 or 19. And um, here's your better at 19 list, according to Noah. Bosher, Freechild, Kotcher, Lindsley, Mickle, Stewart, and Stubbs. So notice that's six men and one woman. Better at 40, Desmond, Finney, Griffith, Hoffman, Jorgensen, Kittredge, Nazaroff. Six women, one man. So note that a lot of the top male players started playing at a much younger age than the, the women on the team. So... Here's Noah's final take. I think the roster as a whole would be more competitive at 40. 
The team's uh, female talent was too inexperienced at age 19 to compete with the World Games level competition. I mean, imagine them trying to go up against Columbia. Yikes. Uh, Even the men with seven plus years of experience would probably have had trouble matching up with world level men's talent. On the other hand, many of the players on the roster have shown amazing longevity and will probably still be competitive at age 40. Bo is already getting close to 40, and although Serge, Jorgensen, and Nazarov still have quite a while before they turn 40, they have shown that they can evolve their play styles, their careers have gone on, and they are still elite. I don't think the team at 40 would meddle, however. The gap between the USA and other teams like Canada and Colombia is not enormous, and when you subtract the elite athleticism of Team USA, they would have a lot of trouble keeping up with the younger World Games teams. I don't think this will be true, he says, in future World Games cycles. The next World Games team in 2021 will probably be a toss-up, and two cycles from now, I expect the majority of the roster to be players who started playing in high school and who are elite athletes, so they would clearly be better at 19 than at 40. Well, that feels pretty definitive. Uh, are there? What, what do you think, Keith? Do you disagree at all here? Do you agree? What do you think about uh, Noah's big breakdown? I think I... Uh, a, two thumbs up to you, Noah. Thank you. Thank you for going so deep on the topic. Uh, but... I think that I agree that I think both teams would have trouble meddling in the current environment. Um, I, I think I would take the age 19 team, although I think it's very insightful to say that the problem with your female matchups would be really difficult uh, with the age 19 team due to the lack of experience. I'm curious, you know, what Anna Nazaroff and Sarah Griffith looked like in their initial years. Uh, I'm pretty confident though that Sandy Jorgensen and Bo Kittredge would still be pretty effective with only a year between them worth of ultimate experience. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could still tell them go run that way as fast as possible. <laughs> now I will say that people underestimate how difficult it is reading a disc for, for new players, even when they're good athletes, but they were both tall and, extremely fast i don't know if people remember this but bo jumped over a guy like a whole guy he did uh, it. so i mean i think they would they they could help tip the scales you also got to remember that these teams have just the premier coaching talent to help navigate some of the pitfalls that come with having an inexperienced roster so you could focus a little bit more on getting the disc in the hands of the players that are more experienced you know grant lindsley was like already on chain lightning at this age by 19. He was like, had like two years of chain experience or something like that. So, uh, I mean, I think that I think I would take the, the age 19 team and hope that the coaches could kind of like make it work. Uh, I think you'd have a better chance then. that's, that's my take. Chris had a great email as well on this topic. Um, he thinks that you'd have to take the 40 year olds because of the experience factor. But he said, I think that if we just add one more year of experience and make it 20-year-olds versus 40-year-olds, it might flip in the other direction. In my experience, the jump from freshman to sophomore year for new players is bigger than any other. The explosiveness of all the 20-year-olds would beat the experience of the 40-year-olds. Because of that, I think the fair ages in this hypothetical would be something like 19 versus 43 or 20 versus 37. I think that's tough. I think if you give me 19 versus 43, I'm going to take 19. 43 is, you're starting to really show some wear on the tires at that point. You're like Steve Sullivan's age. <laughs> um, 
And uh, 20 versus 37 is, I think, much more interesting. Uh, I, I think I probably go 37, but it's close. But like, if you go 21 versus like 30, well, at that point, like I take you're starting 21. to get to your prime, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You're starting to get close to the prime. So I mean, but some of those players had only been playing one or two seasons at that point. You know, uh, even great players when they first started, it, like imagine taking a college freshman, essentially, someone who started playing their very first season of college ultimate, putting them on the world games team. They're going to be awful. I'm sorry. Sandy Jorgensen as athletic and talented as she is, was no doubt a would have been a terrible, terrible player on the world games team in her first season of ultimate. You just, you, you have no sense of what you need to be doing on the field. You like, can't necessarily like throw and catch at all. It, it, it would be a nightmare. And like teams would be trying to funnel the disc into your hands and waiting for you to make a mistake. Because, like, even getting off a simple reset is hard when you're a total newbie. But I think once you get into, like, age 21, at that point, you got to take the 21-year-olds. Because that's, like, they're going to be better than any age down to, like, 32, 33, maybe. My question is, would would either of these 40- or 19-year-old teams win mixed nationals? Wow. Like how far can they go at mixed nationals? <laughs> how 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 long also can we how far can we take this hypothetical? You're you're opening up a big box that I don't want to open <laughs> right now. But I will consider it for next week. Um final small ball segment today. Uh, the AUDL is going to have an all-star weekend this year. We know this. So, what should it include? Obviously, they will have an all-star game. And I would expect that they will do some kind of, you know, They've got the four divisions. They're going to like combo two divisions together and make, you know, like an East Midwest team versus a West South team or something like that. Um, And we could talk about that if you want, but I'm sort of more interested to know, like, what should they do beyond the all-star game? Because most other sports have some other fun competitions. The NBA does the dunk contest and the three-point shooting contest and skills competition. Um Let's not even look at the NFL. The Pro Bowl is trash. Uh, you've got Major League Baseball. They've got the Home Run Derby. I mean, the Home Run Derby is great. So what should Ultimate have besides just the All-Star game? All right. So I so I, I will say I have a little bit of experience with this because uh, when I was at Emory, our tournament had our annual tournament that we – came up with like three or four years ago, had a rookie Olympics every year uh, of which we tried to have something ultimate skills related uh, as at least one of the events. Also an eating competition, which I wouldn't mind if they did some sort of eating relay race at the AUDL uh, level. I think that could be entertaining. But so I've, I've had a chance to think a little bit about perspective games for this. I think a lot of people go to some sort of uh, distance throwing competition right away, but one one time I tried a game where it was about throwing a completable throw as far as you can. So you'd have a cutter and thrower pair and they would start next to each other and then the cutter could go and the thrower had to throw within X number of seconds. Maybe you do two seconds. So within the next two seconds, the thrower has to throw. And the objective is to throw the furthest throw you can that your receiver can catch. So it's like actually supposed to measure – both the, the receiving skill and 
the throwing skill, like your ability to throw a quality deep throw. Uh, you could refine that game for the talent of AUDL players. Maybe there's no gap between, like the throw has to go up right away. Uh, but I could see that being interesting to try and get the maximum distance of a completable throw. What do you think? I, I like that. I really like that. I think like a raw distance competition also makes sense. But, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to measure. Like doing a skills competition is a little tricky. Like, sure, you could make like big, and they probably should do this. You know, you get like a big circular targets with nets. And you got to like throw various throw types into each of the targets. And then it gets like progressively more difficult. And, you know, best time wins. So you start with little short five-yard passes. You got to throw a backhand. You got to throw a forehand. You got to throw a hammer. You got to throw a scuba or something. And then you go to 10 yards. Or like you run some little serpentines through some cones. And then you do – and I'm stealing this basically from the what they do in the NBA. And that, that could be a lot of fun um, because, you know, on-target throwing is an important part of ultimate. And then you also get some like running speed agility work in as well. Uh, but I like the idea of having, and I think you probably need to think a little bit more about how it should work, but a, because how do you make the pairs? That, that would be the trickiest thing to me is like, does, you know, cause not every, is every team going to send players to all-star game? I, I don't know how they're going to do that. If you had two, if you had a, a thrower and a cutter from every team, that would be great. Cause you could just have like the best handler and the best cutter from each team. That's ideal. That's and ideal. then you have each team compete in this competition and that would be really sweet um but i don't know if that's how it's actually going to go down probably isn't it's too many too many too many players maybe too many teams um but uh, that that could be fun i i like the i like the concept i i think it's hard to come up with stuff that's like one-on-one which is what we want like you want you want to have i think it would be sweet to have some sort of skying competition but like how do you how do you design that? I think it would be cool to have something that has a creative element, a la the dunk contest. Um, I think in Ultimate that has to be throwing-based. Uh, but you don't want to quite just do like trick shots, like people throwing into trash cans. But maybe you do. Maybe that's the coolest thing. Like judges judging trick shots. Like Maybe that's the best you uh, can do. The problem is for that to be sweet, it takes – like it's going to take a million tries. It's going to get boring very fast because – People are going to be trying to do some sweet trick shot, and they're going to miss it a million times. Sure. I mean, and it's somewhat happens in the dunk competition sometimes, but still, it like, putting it. down it a ruins dunk. It. Yeah, it, happens, it does. It, like, like, if you get it on the third so try like, after botching the first two, it's like, yeah, well, okay. You really got to hit it first time. And, and with quality trick shots, it just it takes too many tries. It's just too hard. Um, I, it feels like we could also just insert two on two in here. Really, we should force every player to learn freestyle and then do freestyle as one of the competitions. It makes no sense at all. It has nothing to do with ultimate, but freestyle is sweet. Freestyle, freestyle is sweet. I, I agree with you on that point. Well, uh, let us know. Do you have any sweet ideas for the AUDL? If you do, send them to us. We will um, steal them, package them up, and sell them to the AUDL. I, I do have one thing I want to touch on before before we wrap up the show because okay. there's something else I want to come back to. Great. So last last episode, we talked about a would you rather of uh, dropping the pole or uh, getting scored on. And there was also one about dropping the pole or getting hit by the pole on accident. 
Uh, and you brought up a story from Southwest Regionals in the men's division, Cal and UC San Diego, where UC San Diego, I believe, dropped the pull on double game point. Correct. And then Cal turned over the ensuing possession, and UC San Diego went on to score. That's right. But it, it would have been a big upset for Cal. Well, Christian Pajunas, a uh, friend of the show, or at least friend of Cindy Fields. I don't know if she would call herself a friend of our show. <laughs> um, I, I consider her a friend of the show. Uh, she sent us a link on Twitter to a under eight minute, basically documentary of this moment in Cal ultimate history, uh, which I believe was used as a Kaimana application for a team to redeem the player who turned it over with a push pass with a horrendous push pass. Chuck Cal. I feel like I can call you out only because you're like your name's in the video. It's an amazing experience i was so happy to watch this video i watched it twice already so good uh just like a almost 30 for 30 style breakdown of this horrible moment in ultimate history my favorite uh, part is when they like called the guy up who was like the primary cutter and the the filmmaker was like hey and the guy's like yeah he's like hey i, I want to ask you about uh the you know the game against UC San Diego at regionals and he just hangs up the phone and refuses I, to answer future calls. It was, it was so good that <laughs> it was so good that like I feel like it has to be staged, but I don't even I don't care. care. I don't care. I don't it's even so care. Um yeah, no check it out. I'll put the link in the in the podcast description and we uh, need more of this. It's it's great. Definitely check it out. Um and they've got the they, they took the full video from Olsey World so you can see the whole sequence uh, and like hearing Zane Rankin, who's was a was you know of course now playing for Sockeye, who's a big deep cutter for them. Having them, they put him back in the handler set, and having him talk about how he's just completely inept and like why did that happen is great. It's just like I love that those weird things of- that happen when you're under a real stress situation like that, and you're like, oh my god, we're about to win this game, and then you just like do weird stuff, um, and you know you kind of just like choke a little bit. Uh, it's it's really interesting to hear everybody talk about that, and of course it's hilarious because it's a Kaimana bid video. It's just tremendous, tremendous work. Uh, applause to everyone involved. <laughs> all right, well that's going to do it for this week's edition of Deep Look. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you all. Uh, well, I don't know if we're going to have a show next week. May- maybe we'll have a show next week, but we might take the week off for Thanksgiving. We'll see how our schedules shake out. Uh, if not next week, in two weeks. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving if we don't talk to you before then, and we'll talk to you next time.